today I have a special guest with me. I have Dr. Hannah Bloomfield from the University of Reading um, to talk about a kind of emerging topic that we at the Monash Energy Club think is quite interesting. So she's here to talk about the interconnecting disciplines of weather forecasting, uh, climate science and energy. So just a little bit of a background um, about Hannah. So Hannah is a postdoc researcher at the University of Reading. She did a PhD at the University of Reading as well um, in atmospheric sciences and on climate modelling. It's probably not as good of an intro that Hannah can give herself. So I'll kind of let Hannah introduce herself a bit more and give us the opportunity to tell to tell us a bit more about herself. Thanks, Brian. Thank you for having me. It's really great to be here. So as we said, I'm a I'm a postdoc at the University of Reading in the UK. So that's about half of London. It's a really great location to be. And I'm in the meteorology department. So that department looks at weather and climate. So everything from day ahead or hours ahead weather forecasting all the way to climate change uh, many, many, many kind of decades in the future. I work in the energy meteorology group. So one of the many kind of impact-based groups in the department. And we're looking at um, problems related to energy systems and climate on various timescales. So anything from kind of, yeah, days ahead, what's the renewable energy forecast gonna be out to in a few decades, how might climate change affect? Yeah, this is quite interesting. I think this is a very interesting area to find a bit more about. Um, I'm kind of interested because I guess we kind of know that with increasing climate change impacts, uh, we need to move from fossil fuels and look towards renewable energy sources. But we kind of also don't consider at the same time how the increasing effects from climate change are actually also going to affect our increasing implementation of renewable energy. And we kind of think one is a solution to the other, but we don't realise that one is also going to cause problems for the other as well. Yeah, absolutely. Everything's so interlinked. Um, it's really, really quite interesting when you try to study it, because as you say, you know, the, we know the climate is warming and we're pretty, we're pretty confident of that. You can already see it, and particularly in countries like Australia, right? You can already see climate change impacts happening. So that can affect your energy demand. But with some of the other fields, it's much more complicated, like the wind and solar generation. Um, unpacking the climate change response is not as certain as it is with temperature. It makes it a lot harder um, to try and help inform policy, I guess, for what's going to happen in the future. Mm. Yeah, agreed. So I think it is quite an interesting area. And I think I read a bit about your project and it was one of the first projects in the UK that kind of looked about how you needed to model, I guess, climate change or looking at climate change and how this kind of affected distribution. So would you be able to tell us a bit more about how you kind of got interested into this area, especially since it was kind of like the first project and how it kind of really attracted you into this field and where you've kind of, I guess, seen it grow so far from that point? Hmm. Yeah, so I did a, my undergraduate degree um, was in maths and physics. So at school, I was not very good anything involved writing so math physics was kind of the obvious university choice for me I wasn't very decisive so I did both. Um, but with, when I actually got to university I realized I wasn't very interested in kind of pure maths or like the quantum physics I liked the mm. application side of things um, so I was interested um, we had a lot of modules on things like fluid dynamics, um, 
And uh, within the physics department, they did some modules on like low carbon technology. Um, and where I went to university, they were really interested in renewable energy, like wave power, tidal power, but also wind power. Um, so I kind of, across the modules, I was kind of like, okay, well, I like the kind of applied side of maths. We did a little bit of computing as well. And I was like, okay, that's okay. Hmm. Um, and then, yeah, I saw a PhD project advertised, which was like, oh, we'd like someone who, you know, has a physical science background, is interested in renewable energy, because um, we're going to be looking at this kind of intersection of these fields um, of weather and climate and then energy. And I was like, oh, that sounds great. That's, that's all the things that I actually enjoyed from my degree. So I was really lucky that I was able to apply for this and really lucky to get the projects. And yeah, it's it was quite a challenging project, as you can imagine, when you're the first people to try, really try and make some headway in a topic. I spent most of my PhD having no idea what I was doing um, and just kind of feeling, <laughs> I'm sure you all know that feeling, you know, yeah. kind of plodding along, being like, is this, is this good? I don't really know. But then I think somewhere around the middle, things started to click and it was like, oh, actually, the fields of energy and meteorology just don't really know how to communicate. And this is why this is so difficult, this project, because what the energy system modelers want in terms of climate data is very different to what the climate scientists want to provide, um, because they both have very kind angle. Good. So in the PhD project, in my PhD project, we spent a lot of talking about can we merge these fields really important going forward um, and the projects I've worked on since then have really been looking at how can we provide the best possible data um, technology models that climate scientists are still happy and that weather forecasters are still like no that's a good forecast not just something that's easy to go into an energy system model yeah okay I think you bring a couple of interesting points in that like I myself, I had to do some math in university, but I wasn't very interested in the theoretical part. But I guess the application part is much more interesting. And I guess it's good that you could see the applications of where you can take the math that you're learning and actually use it to apply it in real life situations. And I guess actually use it in a beneficial way. And I think that might be something a lot of students actually struggle with, especially if you're doing a science degree, is actually seeing where the applications of what you're learning can actually go to rather than just having to learn about all the dry kind of theoretical stuff but yeah that's quite interesting it's, an, it's nice that math can take you into more fun places I guess rather than straight like just numbers yeah I wanted to bring up the last point that you kind of mentioned is how there was this slight disconnect between what climate scientists were the information they were willing to provide and what the energy scientists kind of wanted have you seen like well I guess previously and up until now that this kind of disconnect was kind of hindering the progression a bit of these two fields kind of merging together. And I guess now that you've seen um, that they're actually kind of working a bit more cohesively, do you find that one side has had to compromise a bit to actually work with the other? Like in terms of, I guess, weather forecasting, you're finding that the data that they've given isn't typically what they were used to providing, but now it's still sufficient for everyone to be able to use effectively. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think there's been compromise on both sides. So the easy example to do, I guess, is for a kind of running an energy system model. 
Uh, a lot of the inputs that an energy system modeler would use would be time series. So like a time series of what the wind power might be doing, a time series of the solar, you know, everything is in time series. And maybe just for one year, because the optimization problems are quite complicated that are going on in these models, right? They'll be like, oh, mm. you know, we don't, we don't, it takes a long time to solve. We can't, we can't run it forever. But if you're a climate scientist, you would say like, well, you can't just put one year of weather data in your model. That year could have had extreme heat wave, could have been drought, it could have been a really cold winter. It won't be representative of, say, the long-term possibilities of what could happen. Um, so from the climate point of view, they want to provide loads of data. Um, so a, a lot of the work that I did at the start of my PhD was looking at actually just different years of data into a different, sorry, different years of weather data into a model. How different are the results that come out the other end? Uh, and we showed that it was quite big and um, I mean, an energy system modelers are now pretty open to this. They appreciate mm. that, you know, yeah, weather is becoming a big part of power systems and we can't ignore it anymore. There's probably a yeah. point where that would have been a, a fine thing to do. But now that we're building mm. lots, um, they need to take it into account. And same with the forecasting. It's thinking about actually weather forecasts are now becoming pretty important. Um, if you're a country like Germany, which has so much wind and solar, um, it wouldn't be possible to run that grid without weather forecasts because you'd have no mm. idea if suddenly a cloud passes over the country and all the solar goes off, you'd be pretty stuffed. So they've mm. become really reliant on good meteorological data. Yeah, I guess that, yeah, that brings a good point. In, I guess, historically, we've depended a lot on fossil fuels, which isn't so much dependent on weather. It kind of contributes to, I guess, hazardous weather effects with smog and with things like that. So we didn't really have to consider with the forecasting to keep our power supplies running. But you bring a good point how Germany actually has to depend a lot on weather forecasting because their renewable energy supplies are so reliant. And I guess to lead on to the next point, it's not actually a, at the forefront of our minds a lot, but a lot of the renewable energy generation is very dependent on weather, such as like solar and wind. So how are you seeing other countries, other European countries and industries adopt weather forecasting systems to kind of improve their renewable energy infrastructure and developments? Yeah, so um, I think it's been really big uptake over the last 10 years or so. A lot of the big energy companies are really interested in their research and development departments. A lot of them now employ a lot of weather forecasters because they appreciate that on many different timescales, it's quite important to have a high quality weather forecast. So we kind of mentioned the really short term, like within the day, you need mm. to know if it's going to be cloudy is a big one in these, especially in central and southern Europe where there's a lot of solar. Mm. And imagine in Australia as well, like if it's going to be cloudy, the rooftop solar, no good. But on the kind of longer time scales, is the last project I worked on, we were looking at weather forecasts, which were kind of between one week ahead out to three months. So the weather forecast you get on the TV only go out to about five days. And there's a reason for that. The skill level gets quite low when you yeah. get out past that time scale. But, you know, with with clever maths and with um, lots of statistical techniques, there, there is still skill left. And we were looking at how you could use that information to make decisions, because even in countries that have a lot of fossil fuels, a weather forecast can still be useful for security of supply. Um, so we 
some of the countries on the project were kind of Eastern European countries where they don't have quite as many renewables yet as the kind of like Germany, France, the UK, we've all got lots. Mm. But they were quite interested in when it might be really cold in the future because they're concerned with their security of supply. They have to buy the coal and the gas in advance and they have to compete with the other countries, right, to make sure they've got the supply. So even if you're not, really highly renewable yet on different timescales it can still be quite important to know what the weather's doing especially if it might cause like a big peak demand where everyone's going to need the gas and everyone's going to need the coal yeah i think that's quite interesting i think you've mentioned a number of interesting things that i'd like to ask about so i guess you mentioned you said that a lot of companies are actually hiring weather forecasters or at least having one person i think that's like great news for people that are interesting, interested in pursuing careers in weather because you kind of don't have to rely on individual countries' bureaus of meteorology anymore to get a job. Your kind of career opportunities get really expanded where you can actually stick in this field. And I think that's kind of really exciting. You don't have to kind of just stick with your Bureau of Meteorology or weather channels anymore. Just for career aspects, you can kind of branch out and have a kind of different impact now in the future. It's also interesting how you... You said you mentioned that countries are also looking at how weather forecasting is helping them to kind of figure out whether or not it's going to impact their supplies. And I think that's kind of important. I think, I guess, in particular for the UK, where your kind of the available land you have for renewable energy infrastructure isn't so great. So you have to kind of look at offshore kind of constructions. Is there, are you kind of seeing an increased desire in um, weather forecasting for, I guess, like offshore sites to ensure that, like, for especially, I guess, during the construction phase, that those particular areas are safe? Because I guess if you're building offshore, it's more kind of turbulent weather and it can be kind of a bit dangerous for workers. How are you seeing kind of, guess, weather forecasting developing in that area? Yeah, offshore wind is a huge thing in the UK. You guys might have seen that recently our Prime Minister made the claim we're going to become what is the quote? The Saudi Arabia of wind power is the new case, the UK's new concept. <laughs> oh, what a guy. But yeah, the offshore, yeah, offshore forecasting is really important. So there's, as you say, there's a lot of aspects. Firstly, there's the knowing if it's going to be windy or not. But what's also quite important is having a good wave forecast, because if anything goes wrong with the turbine, you've got to be able to get a crew of engineers on a boat out to the turbine and the wave heights we can imagine if you're on a boat in the north sea and the the boat's just going up and down like this it's going to be pretty difficult to mend your wind turbine so they need Mm. to find windows of extended calm periods where they're going to be able to get out do the maintenance work if anything does go wrong and then come back so yeah maintenance is one factor they need good forecast for but yeah offshore is definitely I think where our main renewable growth is going to be in the UK that especially after these recent government announcements but it's quite a different set of conditions to predict for than the mm. onshore wind so onshore there's lots of land there's cities there's mountains there's a lot of stuff in the way which the weather forecasting models are not quite as good at capturing because everything is on a grid right we have grid squares and it's hard to represent say a mountain range or um a city by these these grid squares it's a lot more complicated than reality 
Whereas offshore, potentially, uh, potentially we can do offshore because there's less complex topography. Um, there's different challenges like um, circulations associated with sea breezes and around the coast, but um, it'll be interesting to see in the future how how good we can get these offshore wind forecasts. I think that's interesting because I guess we haven't really looked towards offshore that much unless we were really forming like deep sea pipelines and things like that. So even then the facilities to actually record whether in the offshore points wouldn't be very abundant. So yeah, I think that's another difficult challenge that will need to be overcome. So I think you mentioned how UK, the UK in particular is kind of growing towards more offshore sites just because that's probably what's suitable, most suitable for the UK. You can't really rely on sun. And uh, I guess even though you guys are kind of like an island, wave power or like tidal power is not probably the most suited. But that's kind of an interesting point. So how are you finding like weather forecasting? And I guess that kind of space is impacting countries' decisions on what kind of renewable energies they actually develop and where they progress. So I guess like, do you find that countries are going, well, we kind of have too many snowstorms and maybe we can't really do a lot of renewable and we kind of have to depend on something else? Or is it countries are going, well, we actually have a lot more sunlight than we thought, or we have a lot more viability for wind power. So we could, this is actually better options for us. Yeah, I think it's a good question. I think the recent things that have been happening at Texas are a really good example about how people's attitudes are starting to change towards renewable energy because I think um, I see so Texas had a massive snow snow event uh, about a month and a half ago you know where loads of people lost power and everything basically went down there was big coal stations that mm. weren't working natural gas as well as problems with the wind turbines and there were some anti-renewable lobbyists saying oh this wouldn't have happened without the wind power and then there were a lot of scientific articles written on news websites saying no no it wasn't the wind that was the problem this was a really extreme event you know it's really hmm. it's really difficult um it's not it's not the wind power's fault and i think that attitude is starting to re reflect more generally i think people developing energy systems are more open to we can't really find an excuse not to build it now um, mm. The technology for wind and solar is very well developed, it's become affordable. And there have been a lot of projects, kind of climate service academic projects that are showing, actually, we can provide forecasts for you. And there are a lot of methods where the, the, the big problem with renewables is knowing that you can predict what's happened, um, in, particularly in the next few hours or the next few days. But now... Now that these fields of meteorology and energy are becoming more linked up, we're showing that actually we can do a much better job than we could do 10 years ago predicting the renewable generation. And it's really helping, I think, with the development. Okay, that's good. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting point. I guess in terms of extreme weather, we feel, I guess a lot of people think that from extreme weather circumstances, renewables will be the first to be impacted because they're highly dependent on the weather, like wind and solar. If either one goes out, no more, no more energy. But it, I, I guess it's very also important to highlight that such extreme weather cases will also significantly impact our tried and tested sources of energy. Like fossil fuels will go out, so we'll also still have no electricity. So it's not a, the most plausible reason to kind of deny particular renewable energy growth yeah and I think that's quite interesting to note and something very enlightening for people to remember that severe weather circumstances will affect everything it's not just our developing renewable energies so I guess leading on to that 
technology is constantly developing and we're finding that it's improving at light speed paces and we're seeing great growth. So I guess what kind of technology developments are you seeing in this kind of space to kind of help improve our weather forecasting abilities and adapting to the changes in need to predict weather for our renewable energy kind of needs and infrastructure? Yeah, I think uh, from the meteorology side, the big development is computing power um, and data availability. So there's now um, climate data is big. Um, like when, when we talk about big data, the, the project I'm working on at the moment, I'm using climate model runs that are terabytes each. So this is this is big data and you're, you need to you need the space to process that. And it needs to be relatively easy, right, for that to be doing. We're, we're entering a world where, particularly in the academic spaces, that's not a problem at all. We can do that. You know, we're quite mm. comfortable with data that size. And so are a lot of the energy companies. They now, you know, because they've got specialists who are very comfortable working with these forecasts that can be ma- masses of data. Uh, it's easy to store. It's becoming much quicker to process. Amazon cloud services and things like that things like that make storing and processing data in real time much, much easier. So I think from the meteorological perspective, these technological computing advancements have really helped. From the energy side, I think a lot of what's kind of helping in this field is like technology development, like the wind and solar panels themselves are getting really quite efficient. Like the wind turbines can now work in a huge range of wind speeds. And you can basically find a wind turbine appropriate for any site if you wanted to generate energy. And the cost of solar panels are really coming down as more people are building them. So it all seems like good news to me in terms of development. Well, that's good then too. Yeah, I guess you mentioned something quite interesting though, like how you typically handle one terabyte of data and that on the academic side is no issue. And I guess for some energy companies, that's also no issue. Do you find that even though in a lot of other fields, there can be such a big gap between what is done on an academic level and what is actually being done in industry, that there is actually a lot of kind of parallel work and I guess at kind of like same level work being done in academia and industry in this respect? Hmm, That's a good question. I might be biased by who I know because the people that I talk to in energy companies tend to be the people who know a lot about weather. That's why they talk to me because they're interested in my work. I'm interested in theirs, but... I think there are quite a lot of people working in the energy sector, particularly in Europe, in the energy companies who are involved in academic projects. As I said, a lot of the work that gets funded at the moment for us is kind of climate services. And with that, it really helps if the companies are directly involved. So there's this kind of two way interaction where the companies are like, well, this is what we currently do. How could it be better? Or this is what we'd ideally like. How can can you teach us? methods for how to do this so I think there's this uh for many of the companies that I've seen in Europe there's this kind of two-way growth uh, and interaction I'm not sure if that's a universal thing there's again it might just be biased with the companies I've worked with but I think with a slightly different view I know that energy traders in Europe are also extremely knowledgeable about the whole all aspects of the data processing and everything because I mean they're making a lot of money out of these fluctuations in the energy market (laughs) yeah yeah Um, I can imagine yeah Hmm. actually that's I guess that's also another interesting point like 
how I guess a lot of companies through predicting the weather can determine how the market will change. Because I guess if you can accurately forecast when periods of time where you're going to have either a lot of sun or a lot of wind, you can anticipate the peak periods where you're going to be generating a lot of electricity. So that's, I guess, a kind of a interesting way into how this kind of area is kind of growing and developing where originally I would just think it's purely a beneficial and kind of like an academic exercise where we can be like, well, these are the points in time where we will get the most out of what we're trying to make. But I guess from, from a consumerism kind of side, it can be like, well, this is the point where we're now going to make the most money. So this is where we should invest and where we should kind of diverge our assets. But yeah, that's very interesting. I guess this area is not just for people that are kind of just interested in weather and energy anymore. It can kind of be, if you're interested in business and where to make the most money, you can kind of get a foot in and get some benefit out of, which is, I guess, a good incentive for this area to keep growing, provides good motivation for people to keep on investing in this area development. So I've got another question for you. So kind of where do you see the connection between energy and weather forecasting kind of developing and progressing towards? And I guess for students, where do you think the opportunities will lie and people who are interested in this area? Yeah, so I think something I don't know very much about, but something that keeps cropping up and I'm seeing a lot of um, new projects or um, people asking about machine learning. It's kind of like, can we use machine learning methods to help predict the weather better and then link this to the energy data? Because I think a lot of the problems is sometimes the energy data is not very clean. You know, like the wind turbine measurements can drop out for a while. or Sometimes the data is just not very good. But can you train a machine learning model to recognize things like that, like when the data is bad and then to get the forecasts to learn you know to be like oh well often it's a bit low at this time of day so we'll always push it out you know like it's um it's not quite the same kind of physical science but it could be incredibly useful for filling in those little gaps I think with machine learning and in terms of opportunities I think so as we've kind of said there's a there's a lot of places where the energy sector kind of has this interest now you know there's the there's the traders who are really interested in it. It's becoming a big part of the economy. And there's also the kind of academic side of things. But I think most of the opportunities that I have, you know, experienced and seen have actually come through profiles like LinkedIn and just being well connected. Because I think if you are interested in energy and you're kind of in these forums and in these groups, there are quite a lot of opportunities to talk to people. And the skills are very transferable. So although you, you might think you're only interested in, you know, energy particularly, there's similar kind of needs from agriculture and health and tourism. They're all kind of linked together in this impact space. And there's a lot of really useful, um, I guess, common skills between all, all of the users that everyone needs to know about different kind of weather conditions and it impacts all of the sectors in a slightly different but complementary way. Mm. Yeah, that's, I guess, interesting. I guess as if energy becomes a driving force for improving weather forecasting to get more accurate de- data, other industries will also benefit like tourism and I guess travel kind of construction. Yeah, I, I guess it kind of sounds like this area has a lot of opportunities for growth and a lot of, of other areas can actually benefit and develop. So yeah, that's quite interesting. I would say for students, there's a lot of good online material as well. If you, because like 
it's actually quite hard to become an expert in like both of these fields during a degree mm. subject right um because I was very lucky that I had a very poorly defined I guess degree where I was able to dabble in these different things but there's lots of really good online resources like lots of the big European projects publish their data and they have really nice websites where if you're interested in energy you can just go explore the websites look at the data there's also something called the World Energy Meteorology Council which you may or may not have heard of and they have online events and kind of training and things which um they're either free or very cheap for students but it's a really good way to kind of think about how the fields interact but if you are interested in in these fields no one's really expecting you to be an expert in a way Mm. the important thing is being really interested and willing to embrace that actually in the future if I want to work in energy I probably need to know a bit about weather uh, or vice versa so I think Mm. that's a really key point Okay, yeah, that's quite cool. Yeah, I think maybe if I potentially hadn't pursued the field that I was going to, I think this is a great and very interesting area to actually get into. Because it sounds so broad and there's a lot of to do. And it's, yeah, I guess there's a lot of collaboration. And I guess, assuming you eventually solve everything in terms of renewable energy developments, everything, there's potential for you to move into another interesting area to kind of collaborate and work with. Not like it'd be great if we could solve the renewable energy issues and be able to help build the necessary infrastructure. But yeah, if you could hypothetically one day finish that area, you could move on to something else. And I think that's a good kind of positive about this area. So yeah, something else that I just thought of, um, leading on to our kind of extreme weather conditions, this may be because of, I don't know much about weather forecasting, but is there actually potential for weather forecasting to be able to predict extreme kind of weather conditions? Like in Australia, I think, yes, two years ago now, we had a huge, like quite, um, quite a large bushfire, which impacted a lot of our country areas. And I guess those country areas is where are where ideally we develop our solar farms because it's kind of, it's a lot of, I guess, open areas where there is a lot of sun exposure, but also I guess the more prone areas to bushfires. So uh, is there potential for weather forecasting to kind of predict where these extreme cases of weather are going to happen and to kind of, I guess, direct our developments into other, I guess, more safer areas? Yeah, that's a really hot topic at the moment. Can we predict the extremes? Because as you said, the extremes cause the biggest problems and the biggest damage. So it would be best if we could know about them. But it is difficult. So often when you run a weather forecast model, you don't just run the one simulation. So you've just kind of got start here and here. Yeah, fine. You run many members. So you run like an ensemble forecast. So you've got the European Weather Centre run 50 members. So you've got your initial forecast and then an ensemble of 50 more. So you end up with this big plume of possible options. And they're all equally likely. They've been initialized in a very similar way. It's just how the the weather conditions could develop. Uh, And in an area in weather forecasting at the moment, which is being worked on a lot is uh, how can you convey this information from the forecast to to make a decision so it's trying to work out if there are thresholds within these ensembles which become useful and and actionable for decisions and on what time scales that information is useful because I think if we could tell you a week ahead there is a very there's a small chance of of a big event but as that event gets closer and we've run more forecast models, we could be like, actually, we're a lot more certain that that's useful and potentially you can make decisions. But 
the key problem with weather forecasts is they're they're not perfect you know they can always be wrong and i think you have to be prepared that there will be some false alarms and false alarms can be very expensive if you took a lot of measures to prevent a wildfire which didn't happen it's expensive and then people who are paying for that are not happy so yeah extremes are difficult um, we're, we're working yep. on it i think that's where the it's really important to have the interaction between the two user groups like the meteorologists and the energy users mm. yeah i guess that that's something an area to it kind of expire to if we can actually successfully predict extreme cases that would just be great and just not in terms of just for energy but also for i guess people's lives where they can predict well yeah. it's best to evacuate now rather than to stay and kind of wait it out but yeah that's very interesting and i think there is so much potential for this area to keep growing not just in terms of energy but in so many areas as well and it's very interesting to see how i guess we're now realizing what we kind of used to predict used to build our, and plan our everyday lives is now having such a big impact on just society and how we can actually continue to grow. Yeah, was, my last question would have been about how students kind of, I guess, can get started in this area, but I think we've covered that and I think I got sidetracked because it's so interesting that I think there is so much to find out and how, and yeah, how everything connects is just amazing. But yeah, I think we'll wrap it up there. Thanks for joining me today, taking the time out of your busy schedule to kind of share that with, share that with us. It's been very insightful.